The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You can not only learn from your mistakes, you can celebrate them. They define who you are and serve as a learning tool to become your most beautiful self ever. Welcome to Beyond Religion, Your Life is Waiting, with your host, Jim Stacy. Jim is the author of 11 books and is here to help you experience the power of the divine deep within yourself. It's inside you. You just have to know where and how to look for it. Now, here is Jim Stacy. And thank you again to all of my friends out there around the planet who are listening in today. just want to thank you again for all the comments and the, the thoughts and personal experiences that you've shared with me. And I just want to say again, I'm here to support you in your quest and in your adventure in this thing that we call life. Today, I'm honored to have a very special guest with us, a man that I have admired for many years. When I first saw his book, Christianity Must Change or Die, I said, this man is on to something. Today, Bishop John Shelby Spong. Uh, Bishop, thank you, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jim. I'm having a so, hard time hearing you, however. Okay. I'll try to do my best. Let the engineers, I'm sure, will adjust some things. Okay. I, I can hear you, but it's very faint. Okay. I, I will try to speak as clear as I can. So, okay. So anyway, I just, as I said, been following you for a long time and appreciate what you're saying. And I don't know exactly where you are today, so that's what we're going to talk about. And my first question to you is this. What was happening in your experience when you wrote your first book? Well, it seems like a long time ago. That was in 1971. Uh, even then, however, uh, my experiences in life and the sort of words and concepts that I was using in church on Sunday didn't come together very well. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't quite understand why, but I knew that there was a, a discontinuity between what would be called the faith of our fathers and I hope our mothers and the way life was being lived. In that particular first book, it was the it was a crisis in a personal life of a friend of mine uh, over the issue of prayer. Uh, this was a this was a physician's wife, uh, a lovely young woman in her early forties, a mother of three children who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and and there was no way that she was going to survive. And I went to talk to her at her request and and entered into a profound conversation in which we roamed over the terrain of her life and what it would mean not to see her children graduate from high school or college or get married or know her grandchildren or any of those things that are part of the normal parent's life expectancy. And it was one of those profound and moving conversations of my life. And then when I got up to leave, uh, and I'd been there almost three hours by this time, when I got up to leave gears into my professional clergy role 
and invited Cornelia to allow me to join her in prayer. Well, she wasn't going to say no. If I needed to pray, that was okay with her. Uh, but I shifted gears into a kind of pious language that I knew so well from my experience as a, as a pastor, and rattled off a series of uh, words that uh, meant very little to me, and I think very little to her. And when I finished, I walked out, and on my drive back to Richmond, I was seeing her in a hospital in Charlottesville, uh, on my drive back, compare uh, two things. One is the quality and the power of that shared conversation, and the other was the trivialization and shallowness of that thing I call prayer. That caused me to wonder what prayer is. Is prayer the saying of words, or is the prayer the quality of the life that you share with a person? And I became increasingly convinced that prayer has to do with the way you live and not what you say or what you do. And that was the beginning of a kind of revolution for me. And so I began to look at the experiential side of all the words that I used as a, as a pastor and as a theologian to describe what I believed and compare that with the, with the reality of the experience that was, I think, transformative. But the words weren't in touch with that transformative experience. And so it was the beginning of a great journey. Uh, 26 books later, I'm uh, still on that journey, but I have a much better idea of who I am and what I am and what the Church is and what the Christian faith is all about than I did at one point in my life. Well, I deeply appreciate what I have sensed in you is a man of honesty and a man of integrity. And what you have just shared about the dissatisfaction of what you experience within your own life. To me, you are the kind of person we can listen to, and I deeply appreciate that. So tell me more about your learning experience and what took you to write even more. Well, when I was in seminary, uh, I came out of a fairly evangelical Episcopal church in the South when I went, when I went to seminary. And I had what I would call a, a kind of Sunday school understanding of God. God was very much confused with Santa Claus. Uh, God was making a list and checking it twice and is going to find out who's naughty and nice and was going to assign the nice people to the realm of heaven and the naughty people to the realm of hell. And it was all this sort of religion of control. When I went to seminary, I entered into a very deep and lifetime appreciation of a theologian named Paul Tillich who described God not as a being, but as the ground of being. Those words didn't mean a lot to me at the time. Mm. But over the years, I began to process that. The God who we describe, who most Christians today, in fact, most religious people describe, is what I would call a theistic understanding of God. That is, God is an external being located somewhere above the sky and equipped with supernatural power and has the ability to intervene in human history to answer our prayers or to impose the divine will on people. And that's a God that simply has died in the explosion of knowledge in the last 500 years. Yes. Uh, the God who is above the sky makes no sense in a post-Galileo world. A God who does miracles that violate the natural laws of the universe is almost nonsensical in a post-Isaac uh, Newton world. Uh, a God who created a perfect world, a finished world, and then allowed it to fall into something called original sin, into which God has to come as an emissary to rescue the person who has fallen, makes no sense in a post-Darwinian world. And so on, you can go in layer after layer after layer of changes in knowledge 
to which the religious symbols of my childhood never, never could fit. I was also taught in my, in my early life as a Christian in Charlotte, North Carolina, that, uh, that God was in favor of all the prejudices of my region. That is, in my Sunday school and in my church, I was taught that segregation was the will of God, that women were inferior by nature to men, that it was okay to hate other religions, and especially the Jews, and that homosexual people were either mentally sick or morally depraved, so they either ought to be cured or converted. And if you couldn't either cure them or convert them, it was okay to sort of beat them or reject them because that was uh, they were violating the law of God. I had to change every one of those prejudices uh, in the course of my life, and that was a long and slow process. I never learned, I never thought that there was such a thing as a good Jew. I never knew a good Jew in, in, Simon, in when I was in Sunday school. Nobody ever told me that Jesus was a Jew, or that the disciples were Jews, or that Paul was a Jew, or that Mary Magdalene was a Jew. The only person I really knew who was a Jew was Judas Iscariot, and maybe the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were trying to get Jesus. I never had a concept of a Jewish person who was not evil. And, wow. you know, that's just, you look back on that, and you can hardly believe that, uh, that the Church was that complicitous in the prejudice of anti-Semitism, but that indeed is exactly what's happened. So yes. how do you take uh, a faith that at its core is to, be, is to call us into the affirmation of life? Uh, Jesus' words in the fourth gospel, where he defined his purpose, or at least John defines his purpose, is that we might have life and have it abundantly. How do you have abundant life? How do you give abundant life to anybody if you're consumed with your prejudices against them? And that was true of people of color, that was true of, of women, that was true of, of other religious people, and that was true of homosexual people. So the journey out of the kind of Christianity in which I was raised was an incredibly difficult journey, but it, uh, it also was a journey into the fullness of life, and I now see the Christian faith as an asset to the fullness of life and not as a sort of guilt-producing, uh, legalistic guide to righteous behavior, which is the way I looked at it when I started my career. So what I'm hearing from you, then, is you have really gone back to what Jesus, your Yeshua in the Aramaic, what he really taught rather than the dogma of the organized and structures and of religion. Of the dogma comes out of the... But that's when creeds were written, and we decided right. what the true faith is, and, and every religion that has the true faith immediately demonic and begins to persecute anybody that doesn't agree with them. And that's one of right. the problems we're facing in the world, in all religious traditions. Uh, once you decide that you possess the truth, then you begin to persecute anybody that disagrees, and, and that's a tragedy. And we're seeing this, such a sad expression of that in this world today, in the political realm and, and other places, some extremists from the right wing are doing exactly what you said that you learned to overcome. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, I'm not sure it's all on the right wing. I think there's some on the left wing, too. But, sure. Uh, that's, a, that's a prejudice of, <laughs> of our politics. Yeah. But I have known people who are totally intolerant, who are ultra-liberal, just as much as I've known people who are totally intolerant, who are ultra-right. So I, I try to yes. keep those things in balance. And I appreciate that. You're absolutely right. And I don't ever want to 
condemn or criticize one extreme without including the other side of the coin. I wish that we could not use political words like conservative and liberal, because I think they're very inappropriate in the world of of Christianity. There's no such thing as liberal biblical scholarship or conservative biblical Mm -hmm. scholarship. There's only competent biblical scholarship. And you can take competent biblical scholarship and you can interpret it conservatively or liberally, but there's no such thing as liberal uh, biblical scholarship, that's a, that's a misnomer. And we've, we've sort of done that, or used that distinction, I think, to justify positions that simply cannot be justified. Uh, Jerry Farwell, whom I knew quite well before he died, uh, Jerry Farwell used to say of himself that he was a conservative biblical scholar. Well, Jerry was a lot of things, and, and I liked him in many ways, but he was just not a scholar at all. He had no earthly comprehension about how the Bible came to be written. He assumed that it was all literal, that God had dictated it, which means, in my opinion, that he's never really read it, because you can't possibly blame God for some of the things you find in the Bible. Absolutely uh, true. Life has taught us that on so many occasions, that it's it's just hardly an argument I want to engage anymore. I appreciate that very much. In fact, right now, Bishop Spong, we need to take time for a break, and we'll be right back with everybody in just two or three minutes. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Jim Stacy is the author of 11 books, including his first title, Jesus Was Not a Christian, Healing the Shame and Fear from Man-Made Theology. That book is available on Amazon. The other 10 books, which are titled A Healing Spiritual Journey, are available as downloads on thedivineiswithinus.com. When you visit that site, you may also download his CDs and articles, and you can also find out more about where Jim will be speaking, spiritual retreats, and vision quests. Visit www.thedivineiswithinus.com today. Jim Stacy's first book, Jesus Was Not a Christian, is available on Amazon.com. Discover what the church has been hiding for over 1,700 years. Find out why people carry the wounds of guilt and shame instead of the power of loving and being loved. Discover that you are part of the divine. Learn about the kingdom of heaven within you and find out why history has been twisted by those who slaughtered tens of thousands of innocent people. See why the real Jesus never said the words hell or sin. Jesus Was Not a Christian, available right now on Amazon.com. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Being Here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. 
This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane, right here on the Seventh Wave Network. You are listening to Beyond Religion, Your Life is Waiting. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to the divine is within us at gmail.com. Again, that's the divine is within us at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Here again is Jim Stacy. I deeply appreciate, Bishop Spawn, what you're saying today. And when you wrote the book, Christianity Must Change or Die, and now I hear you talking about how you change yourself. And I deeply admire that. Talk to us more about that and where you went from that point. Well, it was it was a slow process. Uh, my racism, uh, which I'd learned primarily in church, my, the church I attended was a very segregated church in the South, but my racism got in, got encountered by the civil rights movement with which I seemed to identify. And, uh, and when the when the fur began to fly in that movement, there was no doubt that I had to side with uh, the Martin Luther Kings of the world and not with my religious bigotry. And that was not an easy time. I was living in eastern North Carolina, and uh, the order came down for the schools of our little 7,500-person city, town, to be integrated. And the, the fear and the hysteria were just overwhelming. I don't think that people who have not been raised in a racist kind of environment understand how deeply the fears is built in that keeps uh, keeps the division rigid. But anyway, the the time came where you had to take a stand, and, and, and I did. Not a terribly courageous stand, but I was probably the only one in that little town that would, would speak positively about the, the potential of integrated schools. And I got named public enemy number one by the Ku Klux Klan in Edgecombe County. I tell people if you cut your pool small enough, you can be a very big fish in it. Edgecombe County was a tiny little eastern North Carolina farming county. But I learned a whole lot about what it means to stand with integrity and to still be loving. Uh, now, the hostility was overwhelming, as as you might imagine. I mean, the fears were such things, Jim, as as People really thought that if the movie houses were integrated, that they'd all be raped by black people when they went into the movie houses. Now, wow. that's quite irrational, and, and they probably knew it was irrational. But the fears were so deep that that was, that was what they were raised in, and so they were really shaking in their boots. In the city swimming pool, if they thought if blacks and whites swam together, the color might come off the blacks and make them black. Uh, it was hysterical and, and unbelievable. But all you have to do is to walk through that and find that nothing happens. And, you know, that's what happened. But, boy, walking through it was not an easy time. And I would have the Klan call me up and threaten to rape my three little girls, who at that time were six, three, and one years of age. And so we lived in that kind of fear. But we worked through it because you don't demonize your 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 friends and your opponents. You help them to grow and what the job of leadership, I think, is to call people into growing beyond the limits of their their prejudices and their fears. Uh, so the civil rights movement is a very important movement. I did not go to, I did not have a black classmate in my life until I was in graduate school. And I, I had one black classmate who, his name was Johnny Walker, and he later became the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, D.C., and he was a man of extraordinary ability. 
But uh, that was a brand new experience in graduate school. People have a hard time believing that today because the world has changed so substantially. I was raised to be sexist. I didn't know I was sexist because it was just the way you lived in the South. Uh, my mother made sure that I, that she, her role in life was to keep her husband happy, to cook his meals, to to provide for him socially and sexually and every other way a wife could provide. But but she was never his equal, and uh, he was the king in his house. And she raised me to be the king in my house. You know, someday I'd be married to a woman who would relate to me as my servant the way she had related to my father as his servant. I just never could find a, a potential wife that wanted to play that role because the world had changed. So, but, so I had to begin to wrestle with that in the process of just growing up. Well. And then I had three daughters, uh, and my daughters were, for some reason or other, strong feminists. They grew into being strong feminists. And you begin to look at life through the eyes of your daughters. I used to tell the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Newark that the Roman Church would never get its head straight about women until their priest had daughters. And he looked at me <laughs> as if he didn't know how to process what I just said. But I do think you learn Excellent. a lot, that things you cannot see through the eyes of your mother or even through the eyes of your spouse, you can see very clearly through the eyes of your own children. I don't want anybody telling my children that they can't be the President of the United States or the Pope or anything else just because they were born female instead of male. So I had to grope with that internally through the experience of having daughters. Uh, and my daughters today are, are pretty, pretty strong feminist women. One's a senior vice president of a major bank and one's a senior counsel to the uh, Virginia Supreme Court. And one has a Ph.D. in physics and is in a high-tech industry in California. And so they've, they've all pushed against the boundaries, and, and I, have been a, I have been a person who has helped to push those boundaries. When I retired from the Diocese of Newark, about 40% of my clergy were female. When I started, we didn't have a single female priest because it was not legal. So that's, a, again, a great transition, and you begin to see... The benefits of that, not the liabilities of that. The church was so much better when it had women in leadership, when it had women being theologians and liturgical scholars, because they were much more sensitive to the wholeness of the human race. And then, you know, for reasons that I don't fully understand, I had a deep, deep attraction to the Jewishness of Jesus. Uh, maybe that also came out of my puritanical southern roots. But I, I just remember that when I went to church, nobody seemed happy. Uh, if if you enjoyed it, it was probably sinful. Uh, it was either sinful or fattening, we were told. And, and church was a somber experience, and I had an occasion from time to time to be in a synagogue. And I didn't find anything somber about it. Uh, they were really happy people. Even on Yom Kippur, the day of penitence, uh, they were still smiling and affirming of each other, and, and it was just sort of a life-giving experience. And so I began to wonder whether my understanding of the Jewish Jesus was adequate, or whether they had some idea about what Judaism was all about that I just never see, and they've sort of been stripped out of the Jesus of my tradition. So I began to go back and read the New Testament, and I read it from a Jewish perspective, and Jesus is always talking about going to a party. You know, all of his parables about great banquets. Uh, he's In one story in John's Gospel, he said to have been able to change water into wine to keep the wedding party going. Uh, that's a pretty phenomenal experience if you lived in the teetotaling South. That's a, that was a pretty radical sort of thing. And so I, I began to look at this Jesus through a Jewish perspective, and being part of a synagogue became important to me. 
And so I used to regularly go to a synagogue on Friday night just to sort of experience that Jewish background. And that led to the writing of my second book, which is called This Hebrew Lord, which is an attempt to put Jesus into his Jewish background and to see what difference it made to look at him through Jewish eyes. And that became a key to everything I later was able to do. Uh, A little bit later, maybe 10 years later in my life, I had a a very serious and, and wonderful public dialogue with a rabbi in Richmond where we raised the questions of, of whether Jews see Christianity accurately and whether Christians see Jews accurately because basically we're reacting to our, stereo, our prejudice stereotypes. And we had crowds, huge crowds in Richmond uh, coming to those. Every Sunday that we did it in my church, it looked like Easter, and every Friday or Sabbath in the Jewish community, it looked like Rosh Hashanah. And the people were really interested, and we began to break down barriers and open up communications. And and I began to see an aspect of the Christian faith I'd never seen before. And that has dominated my thought from that point to this. The rabbi is a man named Jack Daniel Spiro, who's head of uh, the Department of Judaic Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. He said to me on one occasion after this period or so, he said, the trouble with you, Jack, is that you're more Jewish than I am. And I thought that was a great compliment. I was really glad to hear it. Excellent. Uh, he's still a very, very close friend of mine. If if I predecease Jack Spiro, uh, he will be the preacher at my funeral, which would be a very unusual event to have an Episcopal bishop being buried with a, a rabbi doing the sermon. That probably that may not have ever happened before. But anyway, I'm not looking forward to dying, but I'm looking forward to the impact of that if, it, if we actually get that sort of thing to take place. So that became another piece of my... I now believe you cannot read the New Testament without understanding that it's a Jewish book. And when you understand it's a Jewish book, you cannot possibly treat it as literal. The feeding of the 5,000 is not the story of a miracle where Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and expands it so you can feed 5,000 people. That's rationally absurd. But every Jew knew that that was not a literal story, that that's a story of Moses sending manna in the wilderness to the starving masses of the Jewish people, and that power is being attributed to Jesus. That's a whole new way to look at the New Testament, and it escapes the sort of biblical literalism that I grew up with. I really appreciate how you say that, because one of the things I'm working with right now, my own experience, is working more with understanding myth, mythology, metaphor, and all of the symbolism, which Jesus or Yeshua taught. And I, yeah. what, you, what you've just said is extremely important. Well, Christians don't understand that the Middle Eastern people were great storytellers. Yes. And, and, you know, in the West, when you want to tell a story that's not literally true, you begin by saying, once upon a time, and everybody knows you're going to be told a story. In the Middle East, <laughs> exactly. exaggerated so that everybody knew this is not literal, so that they can talk about a fish that was so big it could swallow Jonah whole. Nobody in the Middle Eastern world would have ever taken that story literally. But of Western course. Christians who didn't understand that do take yes. it literally, and it's sort of tragic. The, the Christmas story... Uh, the story of the wise men is clearly based upon a text from the book of Isaiah. Uh, you know, the book of Isaiah says, I think it's chapter 60, that kings will come to the brightness of God's rising. They will come on camels. They will come from Midian, and they'll bring gold and frankincense. That ought to sound a little bit familiar, but most Christians have never heard that. And exactly. so you go back and you see that 
that what is happening in the New Testament is that these stories are probably Christian sermons preached on Jewish texts to try to interpret the meaning and the power of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you can find uh, that way to read the New Testament, you don't get caught up in all the terrible things that I got caught up in in a child in, in my Episcopal church in the South that where you use the Bible to justify your prejudices. Would you say, Bishop Spawn, that a part of the reason that so much, so many people in the church got it all wrong and un- misunderstood the myth and the story is that the fear that was instilled in them kept them from seeing that? Well, I think that's later. I think originally what happened is that the Christian church was born as part of the synagogue, and by 150 of this common era, it had become a totally Gentile movement. And But the scriptures, the Gospels, were all written when it was part of the synagogue, or at least right after. Uh, certainly Matthew and Mark were written while it was part of the synagogue. Luke right. may have been written afterwards, but it leaned on Mark, so that also reflects the synagogue community. And John is the only one of the four Gospels that really does reflect the schism and the division where the, the followers of Jesus are excommunicated by the Orthodox party, and that took place somewhere about 88 to 90 of this common era, but well after well, after the time of Jesus' earthly life, which appears to have come to an end about the year 30 of this common era. So that what you have from about 150 on is that the only people that read the Christian stories, the Christian scriptures, are Gentiles who have no understanding about Jewish scriptures, Jewish culture, Jewish liturgy, Jewish worship, Jewish storytelling tradition. And so they don't know any other way to read it except literally. And then by the time you get to the 4th century, Christianity has become a dominant religion in the empire, and Constantine calls them together in Nicaea and wants them to get make sure they've got it organized so that it can be a unifying principle in, in the empire. And so he demands that they adopt creeds. Well, once you adopt creeds in the Christian church, then you've got to spend your life defending the truthfulness of those creeds and, of course, burning at the stake anybody that disagrees with those creeds. And so we entered into that kind of phase and it's only, I believe, in the last 50 years of the 20th century that we've finally begun to come back and to re-understand and re-establish the Jewishness of the sacred story that we Christians call the New Testament. I appreciate that so much. And I hope that all of you listeners are writing some things down and taking some notes. Uh, Bishop Spong, you are an educator and a true hero in so many ways. Right now, we have to take time for another break, so we're going to come back and explore some more about your journey and the other books that you've written. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Jim Stacy's first book, Jesus Was Not a Christian, is available on Amazon.com. Discover what the church has been hiding for over 1,700 years. Find out why people carry the wounds of guilt and shame instead of the power of loving and being loved. Discover that you are part of the divine. Learn about the kingdom of heaven within you and find out why history has been twisted by those who slaughtered tens of thousands of innocent people. See why the real Jesus never said the words hell or sin. Jesus Was Not a Christian, available right now on Amazon.com. Jim Stacy is the author of 11 books, including his first title, Jesus Was Not a Christian, Healing the Shame and Fear from Man-Made Theology. That book is available on Amazon. 
The other 10 books, which are titled A Healing Spiritual Journey, are available as downloads on thedivineiswithinus.com. When you visit that site, you may also download his CDs and articles, and you can also find out more about where Jim will be speaking, spiritual retreats, and vision quests. Visit www.thedivineiswithinus.com today. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You are listening to Beyond Religion, Your Life is Waiting. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to the divine is within us at gmail.com. Again, that's the divine is within us at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Here again is Jim Stacy. So, we're talking about a lot of very important issues, issues that have been on the table for a long time. Bishop Spong, I deeply appreciate how you talk about standing with integrity and ex- being the expression of love. I've call on, called it many, for many t- uh, years now the, that I have to embody, I have to be and walk my talk and practice what I say is real. And I see you doing that. I've, I've watched you do that in the books that you've written as you've overcome fear and, and sexism and pushing against the boundaries. I especially appreciate how you said that the church became stronger when it included the women. And I think one of the big challenges that we have as human beings is to integrate both our feminine mass sides and our masculine sides. But tell me this in your journey, how has the books that you've written, and tell us more about that as you'd like to, and then at the end we're going to talk about your latest book as well, but how is your journey reflected in the books that you've written? Well, all books, whether they're novels or history or or academic, are in some sense autobiographical. As you can't get outside your skin and outside your experience. <clears throat> so in, in effect, what I've been doing is chronicling my own spiritual journey in these books with the hope that it will illumine other people's journey and so they can see some of their journey in me. Uh, as if I were reading them, I might see some of my journey in them. Uh, that's that's the goal. Now, my life has been lived inside the institution of the Christian Church, and I'm happy about that. I'm not complaining about that at all. But you've got to sort of filter that understanding into a congregation of ordinary men and women on a Sunday morning. Uh, if if my books have anything that's different about them, is that they are able to communicate because I don't use the jargon of the theological enterprise because it doesn't make any sense to people sitting in the pew on Sunday morning. And I have many academic friends. I'm a member of the Jesus Seminar, and when I listen to them talk, there's almost no way you can translate some of the things they're saying into the experience of real human beings because it's all academic. And and uh, even Paul Tillich, who's my favorite theologian, sometimes I have to read Paul Tillich's paragraph three or four times before I can embrace what he's talking about because he uses incredible philosophical concepts that he's always talking about ontology and and uh, all, all sorts of other theological words that nobody would use in an average conversation. So I think the discipline of having to speak to an average congregation on a Sunday morning over the course of my lifetime has made a real difference. And then, of course, uh, the Church decided to make me a bishop. They may have regretted that, but they decided to do that in 1976. 
and and at that point you begin to deal with the with the hierarchy of the church and that's even more exciting because uh, you know somebody that doesn't buy into the traditional symbols uh, is a disturbing presence in the hierarchy and so as life would go along the the things that we were doing in my diocese became agenda for the national church because they became controversial so so i ordained the first openly homosexual male who lived with a partner in 1989 and the church went up in arms uh, about that it was a very exciting time in order to do it we had to walk through picket lines and and all sorts of other things uh and we had abc cbs nbc all the ted turner networks uh, his including his headline news attending this service in hoboken new jersey of all places wow. and and the what happened was that it, this thing became a national story it played on headline news every 30 minutes for 24 hours. And I began to get incredible amounts of mail, most of it quite hostile. And so in, in order to respond to that, I sort of took the show on the road, and my wife and I uh, went across the United States talking on every radio and television program that would invite us to tell the story and to, in the process, educate the 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 world. It's interesting to me that I'm right now reading a book that's in manuscript form that hasn't yet gone to a publish, publisher, written by a man named Dr. Robert Lahita. When I knew Bob Lahita first, he was on the staff of the Cornell Medical Center in New York City. And I went to him when I began to engage the issue of homosexuality as a bishop and didn't know what I was talking about. And so I, I knew this man uh, from a previous contact, so I called him up and said, Bob would the doctors at the Cornell Medical Center like to educate a, a bishop about what sexual orientation is all about. Well, they'd never had a bishop that wanted to be educated, so this was kind of a fun idea. So I worked with Bob Lahita and read all the papers that they were working on and, and, and met with some of the other doctors at the Cornell Medical Center. And I came to a whole different conclusion. Uh, nobody in the medical or scientific world thinks that a person chooses their sexual orientation. I didn't choose to be heterosexual. Uh, you know, I didn't. I just woke up sometime when I was about twelve, and suddenly girls didn't seem obnoxious to me any longer. But I didn't make a decision about that. And if somebody said, "Oh, you're now heterosexual," I would have known what they were talking about because I didn't have an idea what that word meant. I'd never heard that word. We didn't have homosexuals in the South, so we never used that word. I don't think I heard that word until I was maybe fourteen or fifteen years old. And so that's the beginning. Uh, you begin to process life and learning in a whole new way. And, uh, and But it's really controversial when you move against the, the traditional moral norms. And we got through that battle, Jim, in relatively short period of time, uh, 50 years. 50 years ago, almost every politician in America sounded like Mike Huckabee on the gay issue. But now the great majority of them, even on the conservative Republican side, they don't want to be identified with that issue because it's a losing issue for them. And on the Democratic side, they're quite willing to court, overtly court, the gay and lesbian vote in this country. So the, and this enormous transition in just 50 years of time. Anyway, I was, Bob Lahita has just written a book called Sex Essence, which hadn't come out yet, in which he goes into the physiology of, of how homosexuality is, is formed. And it has nothing to do with anybody's volition. Nobody can choose to be gay or straight anymore than they can choose to be white or black or left-handed or right-handed. That's just who you are. And you can't discriminate against a person because of who they are. 
when I retired, we had 35 out-of-the-closet gay and lesbian ordained clergy serving openly, and 31 of the 35 lived with their partner. And this is in a, <coughs> an area before you didn't talk much about gay marriage uh, because that concept just hadn't come yet. But they were committed partners, and, and we really worked on educating our people. And when I retired from the diocese, every nominee to succeed me as the bishop had to be on a pro-gay side or he would not or she would not have been nominated. <laughs> That's Excellent. We had changed the culture. Excellent. And it made a great deal of difference. Uh, and I think that's what happens. You just continue to meet the, the issues of your day. You bring the resources of your faith to these issues. And you love others. Uh, well, I hope you know better. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's always important that you don't demonize your enemies. You're, yeah. And they're not your enemies, your opponents, those who don't yet see. Uh, but that's true in every in every religious dispute. Religion can make people demonic. Uh, you know, you can kill in the name of the God of love, and it, yes. it, it just makes no sense at all, because that's so deep in the emotions of most people. And we saw that just happen this last week at the uh, well, Planned Parenthood. Uh, the murder at the Colorado Springs uh, Planned, Planned Parenthood Parent. Center yes. is a good example of that. And if you know Colorado Springs, you know that every right-wing fundamentalist Christian organization seems to have its headquarters there. Yes. And yes. so the the atmosphere in that community, I've been there on a number of times, is a, there's an outstanding United Church of Christ that's very liberal and outspoken in the heart of that city. And there's Colorado College, which is a fine liberal arts school, small liberal arts school there. But then the great majority of that population are, are James Dobson and his focus on the family group and, and all these right-wing fundamentalist groups. So the tensions there are unbelievable. I know the president of Colorado College. I don't know. He may still be there, but I knew him at this time. But he reached out to Jim Dobson and said, you know, we live in the same town. We'd not at least be respectful of each other. And I thought nobody was reaching out to anybody in that period of time. So I thought that was kind of exciting. I was distressed to read about this, but you never know. You put guns into the hands of mentally disturbed people, and then you add to that the political rhetoric <clears throat> which demonizes Planned Parenthood, Yes. and you set the stage for that kind of tragedy. Now, people yes. have got to understand that, that our language uh, is, is inflammatory and that not everybody's stable, and it happens in, in black people. It happens against homosexual people. It happens against women. It happens against and Planned Parenthood, wherever there's a flashpoint, uh, if the rhetoric gets excessive and violent, then you can almost be assured that some mentally deranged person will decide to right the wrongs of, of life by taking yes. a gun and killing some people. So many times I see these days that what I see in others and I don't like, I just need to look inside myself and see what part of myself is being reflected back to me. Oh, if, I work, if I work on myself and change that's myself. That's correct. And even yeah. in the great debate on the House of Bishops, in the House of Bishops of my church, some of the most homophobic people in the House of Bishops, some of the most homophobic bishops, let me be blunt, were deeply repressed homosexual males. Yes, that's true. They couldn't accept themselves and they surely couldn't accept anybody else. Right. And, and so they're reflecting their own negativity, and it's a really sad thing to watch. <coughs> so 
Bishop Spong, we need to take another time for another break here, and in our last segment to come is the shortest one of all. I want to be talking about what you see as the next phase for Christianity as you see it. To the audience, we'll be right back after another two minutes. The Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Jim Stacy is the author of 11 books, including his first title, Jesus Was Not a Christian, Healing the Shame and Fear from Man-Made Theology. That book is available on Amazon. The other 10 books, which are titled A Healing Spiritual Journey, are available as downloads on thedivineiswithinus.com. When you visit that site, you may also download his CDs and articles, and you can also find out more about where Jim will be speaking, spiritual retreats, and vision quests. Visit www.thedivineiswithinus.com today. Jim Stacy's first book, Jesus Was Not a Christian, is available on Amazon.com. Discover what the church has been hiding for over 1,700 years. Find out why people carry the wounds of guilt and shame instead of the power of loving and being loved. Discover that you are part of the divine. Learn about the kingdom of heaven within you and find out why history has been twisted by those who slaughtered tens of thousands of innocent people. See why the real Jesus never said the words hell or sin. Jesus Was Not a Christian, available right now on Amazon.com. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. You are listening to Beyond Religion, Your Life is Waiting. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to the divine is within us at gmail.com. Again, that's the divine is within us at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Here again is Jim Stacy. So to all of you who are listening today, I'm sure you're deeply enjoying, uh, as I am, the words from our friend Bishop John Shelby Spong and all of the adventures that he's been on. So, Bishop Spong, I'd like to ask you in the last uh, segment we have today, what do you see as the next phase for Christianity? Well, it's a good question, <clears throat> and you, you have, to, have to sort of walk into the future one step at a time. I have people that ask me what the church is going to look like in 50 years, and I tell them that that depends on what the church looks like tomorrow. You can't go from <laughs> here to 50 years from now. You've got to go day by day and step by step. But I think what is happening is that we are becoming more aware of what I would call the theological revolution, uh, where God defined uh, theistically is fading out of people's experience. And and sometimes people think if God is not theistically understood that the only thing you have left is to be an atheist. And I think what we've got to develop is a way to conceptualize and talk about the divine and the holy outside personalistic terms of a you know a supernatural being who lives up in the sky somewhere. So I see a great theological revolution going on there. I think the sense of being interdependent is also growing. I think individualism will finally turn out to be a, an absolutely false premise. We are so deeply interrelated, that, uh, and we don't yet know that. Uh, in the evolutionary process, we've discovered that 
that we human beings are not just kin to the great apes, where we have about a 99.9% DNA identification, but we also got DNA connections with the cabbages and the plankton of the sea, so that in the last analysis, all living matter is related. And the sense of being one with all living things, not just uh, human, but all living things, we're deeply interdependent, and we're beginning to learn that as we have to deal with some environmental crisis. I suspect the environmental crisis brought about by global warming will be the next great issue that the Christian Church will have to uh, address. And if we don't address that, and I'm not sure the Christian Church has the power to do a great deal about it, but if we don't address it, I don't think there's much future for the human race uh, in the next 500 years. But And that's going on right this minute in Paris, where politicians are finally beginning to be aware of the trauma. So I think individualism will fade, a sense of being uh, mutually responsible to every other human being and to every other human or every other living thing will be part of the Christian future. I think we'll have to discover a different way of talking about ethics. I don't think there's a code, not the Ten Commandments, not the Code of Hammurabi, not any code that can encapsulate moral behavior for all time. Uh, Even the Ten Commandments uh, are so culturally determined. Most people don't know there are three versions of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, and they don't all agree. Uh, And so when somebody says, can you name the Ten Commandments, you really can't because they don't agree in in the Bible itself. Uh, But I think what what we'll get to with ethics is that what makes life good is that you are sensitive to and accepting of the humanity of another. And anything that affirms human life is good, and anything that denigrates human life is bad, and that's a very different basis from the moralistic categories that we used to, to look at. I think we'll find that what we call prayer will be vastly different. Prayer is not an individual petitioning a supernatural God who lives somewhere above the sky to intervene. Prayer is to be open to your to enable yourself to be a God presence in the world and in the process of giving your life and your love away, you enhance the life and the being of every other every other child of God. And I think there's great therapeutic power in that, that uh, but we've looked at it only in terms of you know, saying prayers for somebody else. I think we're in for a great reform- reformation. Uh, the reformation of the 16th century was very powerful and it's very political, and it resulted in 30 years' war and the Spanish Armada attacking Protestant England and a lot of other catastrophic events. But when you look at it from the vantage point to 500 years later, the Reformation didn't reform much about the Christian faith. It reformed the externals and the authority claims. But they all still said the same 4th century creeds. They all read in the same literalistic way the Bible. They all had liturgical patterns that were born in the 13th century. And I think that's what we'll have to change. Uh, We will see universal humanity. We will see tribal boundaries as something we've got to transcend. We'll see racial boundaries as something we have to transcend. We'll see gender boundaries. We'll see sexual orientation boundaries. There is only one humanity, and our job is to enhance humanity and to call it into all that it can possibly be. My, uh, My basic creed is that if you understand God as the source of life, then you live fully, and the more fully you live, the more you make God visible. If you understand God as the source of love, then you love wastefully, 
and you when you love wastefully you make the love of god visible and god is the ground of being and when you dare to have the courage to be all that you can be and enable others to be all that they can be then you make god visible and it will be much more an experiential religion than it will be a doctrinal religion and i think it'll be a new renaissance for the christian faith and i look yes. forward to it hope i hope i live long enough to participate in it. <laughs> i feel the same way uh, thank you so much for the insights you have given to us today. And I, Jim, I, thank I'm you reminded, I'm reminded of what Yeshua said. We have about three minutes left here. Um, when he, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. And what I just heard you say about human beings being interdependent and caring for one another, you are really talking about the kingdom within, right? That's exactly right. And Good. it's fascinating when you look at the book of Isaiah, when somebody asked him how you would know that the kingdom is coming, he would say that you see it in human wholeness. That's when the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the lame will leap and the mute will sing. Human yes. wholeness reflects the presence of God. And so the task of the Christian faith is to call people into being whole people. I've had a couple of shows about that. In fact, what you mentioned earlier about there's something else besides leaving some form of religion in the past and just being an atheist. I've had a couple of shows on that. In fact, next week's show is going to be more about that. And I love how you said that, because we need to wake up to who we are, to who other people are, and to join together in celebrating a world where everybody wins. We've got about a minute and a half left. Give me about uh, 30, 40 seconds or a minute of a, uh, a thought you'd like to leave with the audience. Well, let me, let me just pick up what you said. I think atheism is a profoundly religious response. I think what the atheist is saying is that the theistic definition of God that has permeated the world is simply not big enough to be who God is. And so you've got to, you've got to find a way to talk about God non-theistically and yet not unrealistically. And I think that's where the future lies. I think atheists are prophets that call us to say, your God is too small, you've got to give me something more than that if you want me to understand what faith is all about. And I think that's part of what the Christian faith has got to do. Yes, I totally agree. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have a show dedicated to uh, celebrating with my atheist friends something more, something deeper about this kingdom, queendom of heaven within us. So, yep. John Selby Spong, thank you for joining us today. And for all of you listeners out there, uh, I am just absolutely delighted that you've been able to share this time with me. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking more about that space between religion and atheism. And take this discussion much further. John Shelby Spong, thank you for your integrity. Thank you for your honesty. You are deeply appreciated. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate you having me. And to all of you listening today, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. Thank you for tuning into the program today. Please join Jim Stacy for another edition of Beyond Religion, your life is waiting next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. This week, let the divine work for you and with you. You're bound to experience a new life.